This is Bethany Hughes for the National Trust. When you hear the words Sutton Who, probably what first springs to mind is the image of a ferocious, full-face Anglo-Saxon helmet and tales of lost treasure buried in a nameless king's royal boat. And indeed, the Sutton Who helmet is one of the wonders of the medieval world. And this site, where I'm walking right now, does preserve one of the most famous Anglo-Saxon ship burials ever found. But new evidence is now revealing more. At last there are fresh clues to the identity of the mysterious man who wore that wonderful helmet, and of the life that the king and his courtiers would have lived around here, overlooking the River Deben 1400 years ago. But for me, probably the most exciting revelation of all is the realisation of just how tightly connected this little Anglo-Saxon settlement in a remote corner of East Anglia was to a wide and wonderful world. The ship burial was first discovered back in 1939 when Mrs Pretty, who lived in Tranmer House on the Suffolk site, asked a local archaeologist, Basil Brown, to excavate the mounds in her back garden. Beneath what's now called Mound One was the imprint of the 27-metre-long ship. At its centre were the remnants of a burial chamber, packed with treasures of unparalleled artistic quality. The burial clearly commemorated a ruler of an Anglo-Saxon kingdom in what is now East Anglia, and the goods left with this mystery king were to travel with him to the afterlife known as Valhalla in Norse mythology. I'm coming to meet Laura Howarth, who's a research assistant. Hi, Laura, it's Bethany. Good morning. Good morning. Lovely to see you. What a charming place to meet in the shadow of Mound One. And it's so peaceful here. We've just got wind blowing in the grasses and it's a very calm little hump, this but just remarkable to think what was discovered inside. Yes. So during the 1,300 years that she lay here in secret, water seeped through the soil and gradually rotted away the timbers of the ship. So all that was left was this shadowed skin, this ghost of a ship peppered with iron rivets. Remarkably also, no body was found, again due to the acidity of the soil, but the treasures of the person that was laying within the ship did survive. And who do you think that was? I know it's been much debated this. One of the contenders is this man, King Redwald, isn't it? Yes. So he's a likely contender. He died around this time and he definitely would have been somebody important enough to warrant such a burial as this. You had to be a VIP to be buried in any of these burial mounds and he was very much a VIP. And do we know when the burial was left here? We're talking about maybe the 620s. We do know there was a ladybird had found its way into the pillow and also a flower believed to have been laying near the feet ends of the body, indicating that the burial took place in the spring summertime. So amazing actually what details you can start to glean, isn't it? Yes. Bits of evidence like that. Yes, even though the body didn't survive. We do know that whoever was buried in there, the man of Mound One, he wore in modern day terms a UK size seven shoe. 
and what is likely of a kind of short, stocky build. And what do the contents of this man, what did they tell us about the connections of this king, whether or not it was Redwall? Yes, the objects themselves tell us that this person was very well connected with Europe and the far-reaching world through the materials used, the craftsmanship and many of the designs used here. This person was a very savvy collector of different items. And they were extraordinary treasures that were found here. Now, I stayed on the site last night in Mrs Pretty's house. And is it true, the story, that when the treasures were discovered, some of them were kept under her bed? So the story goes, yes. Um, possibly they may have been kept under the bed before the inquest, which determined that Mrs Pretty as the landowner could keep the treasures, but she very selflessly donated them to the nation, the largest donation made during a donor's lifetime, and the originals can be found in the British Museum. She was a real heroine. But I should tell you that I had a nightmare last oh, really? night. So I don't know whether it was the ghosts of some kind of Anglo-Saxon king wow. coming and jabbing at me. Well, the story goes as well that one of Mrs Pretty's friends, she was standing over at Trammer House and she looked over to the mounds and apparently she saw some ghostly figures dancing on the mounds. And that possibly gave Mrs Pretty the impetus to find out what lay within the mound so ghostly happenings have happened possibly before. Laura I cannot tell you how pleased I am I didn't know that story last night. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think I'd have turned up this morning. Laura's brought me into the museum, and this is a replica of the burial, isn't it? Yes, so this is a, a reconstruction of how we think the mound one ship burial looked at the time of the funeral. So we've got the figure of the Mystery King surrounded by all these rich goods that would have accompanied him to the afterlife. And what really dominates this burial, it's very interesting actually seeing it laid out like this, is this huge silver platter which is resting at the end of his feet and I'm particularly excited about this because I know that we think this was made all the way back in Constantinople so modern day Istanbul. Yes so this is called the Anastasius dish named so because the control stamps on the bottom think of them a bit like a hallmark really we can identify to the Eastern Roman Emperor Anastasius I. So this dish was already an antique at the time of the Sutton Hoo burial. There are two roundels featuring Uh, seated figures and possibly they might be representative of as you said Constantinople and Rome as well. These are the two kind of powerhouses of the world old Rome and new Rome Constantinople and it really tickles me the fact that this would have been an antique when it was buried with the king so it's kind of like us you know choosing to have some beautiful bit of Edwardian silver sent to our tomb. Yes, definitely a statement piece showing how well he was connected to other parts of Europe. And do you see that displayed on the other artefacts that were left in the Yes, barrier? lots of different parts of Europe and the wider world even are represented. So shall we go and have a look? Lovely, yeah, let's leave him in peace. You've got an absolute table of treasures here. So first object that I'd like to show you, so I'll just hand this over to you now, is a replica of the the scepter. So would you like to hold? (laughs) There we go. Gosh. So this is made out of grey whack, which is one of the kind of hardest forms of sandstone that you can find. At the top we've got four faces around the outside and four faces at the bottom as well. Uh, Some new research has pieced together that one of the faces on the scepter has its left eye 
enlarged. Looking at Scandinavian material as well, this new research suggests that this might be an allusion to Woden, who sacrificed his left eye for knowledge. Oh, so Woden, that's interesting. So he's the god that gives us our day Wednesday, isn't it? Yes. That's yeah. right. So you've got Woden's day, Wednesday, Thor's day, Thursday. So we can still see that even though the Sutton Who ship burial took place 1,400 years ago, many of their signs, their customs still survive today. Yeah, so Woden, with his damaged left eye, is still walking and living amongst us. Yes, definitely. <laughs> So the next object, well, a warrior wouldn't be complete without a sword. Be careful, it's very sharp, but here you go. Oh, look, I've never held an Anglo-Saxon sword before. Actually, I mean, I can see it is very, very sharp, but it's light. Yes. That's really interesting, isn't it? So we've got this lovely pattern-welded blade, kind of looking like flowing water down the centre. Yes, it's almost like a herringbone tweed sort of stitched through the metal. Yes, I really like that, yes. Rods of metal which are heated, twisted, and then cut to create this lovely pattern. So this isn't a run-of-the-mill everyday sword. This is definitely somebody that could afford that kind of exquisite craftsmanship. What have you noticed particularly with this? If we just look at the pommel, so that's the top of the sword, So some really exciting and upcoming research, it hasn't been finished yet, that's being carried out at the British Museum. Can you see this, we call this filigree work, which is this kind of thin gold beading across the top. It's been noticed that the filigree work is more worn on one side than the other, so the proper left side. And this research is suggesting that the person that may have owned and worn this sword may have been left-handed and that's why he was constantly grabbing the left. Yes, his placement of his hand has created that rubbing that has meant that the individually defined beads have kind of blurred slightly. That's great, isn't it? So immediately it stops being an artefact and it becomes a possession. How exciting that it's slowly, slowly revealing its secrets to us. Definitely. And I've managed not to cut myself. Top marks. (laughs) Okay, right, we're now going to move on to one of my favourite objects, which is very ornately decorated. So I'll just hand this over to you. This looks to me like a shoulder clasp. Yes, that's right, yes. Yeah. What high work this is. So we've got detailed panelled patterns, these lovely curved edges. Are these precious stones? Yes, so we've got a mixture of Milfiore glass, which is the kind of checkerboard pattern, and then we've got loads of garnets. So 4,333 cut garnets have been used in total within the Sutton Hoo treasures and it's thought that most of them would have come here from either India or Sri Lanka. So we can see that the person buried in Mound One was connected not only with Europe but much further afield. There was likely a, a central cutting workshop in Europe from which then they would have been distributed after they had been cut. I mean, it's all evidence that's adding up to a picture of a much more cosmopolitan world than we might imagine. Definitely. This is often referred to as the Dark Ages, which is a phrase that we don't like that much because it was a very sophisticated age, as you said, very cosmopolitan. So hopefully we're shedding light upon the Dark Ages today. Well, absolutely. And wearing a show-off shoulder clasp like this with garnets, you know, there is nothing dark about that. No. This is lustrousness incarnate. Definitely. Rendlesham is a four miles gentle boat ride up the River Deben from Sutton Hoo. 
It's still farmed, so what you see at first glance today is mainly ploughed fields. But in 2008, a landowner invited the council in to investigate, and since then, archaeologists have been working with the farmer to explore this hugely significant area. What they've discovered here is a high-status residence, perhaps a large timber hall, which reveals that Rendlesham was once the home of a king. And we know that a Redwald lived for a bit at Rendlesham. So while Sutton Hoo celebrates death, Rendlesham is all about life. It's suddenly like being able to study London by looking at the whole city, instead of just at Highgate Cemetery or at the crypt of St Paul's Cathedral. I'm here with Faye Minter, who's Suffolk County Council's Senior Archaeological Officer and who's been working at Rendlesham since 2008, that's right, is it Faye? Yes, that's right. Um, since 2008 we've been coordinating work at Rendlesham and we've now found that we've got the richest, longest-lived Royal Anglo-Saxon settlement in England at that site, so it is very exciting. So it's a 50-hectare site. How many people about do you think that's going to be living there? What we can say is there definitely would have been a mix of people living there. I think it would have been a residence and a state centre for the Anglo-Saxon kings in East Anglia at that time, between probably the 5th and the early 8th century. They would have lived there not all of the time. They would have just lived there for some times, maybe once or twice a year. But there would have been a permanent population there as well to maintain the estate. So I think at some points in time it would have had a very large population because the king and all of his followers would have come and lived there. And obviously people would have come to give tribute and he would have administered justice. But at other times it could have been a much smaller permanent population that just kept the place ticking over. So we've got this expansive site. We know there are people who are enjoying a high-status lifestyle on it. It's four or so miles from Sutton Hoo. It seems likely that there's a connection, but what's your hard evidence that there's any connection between Rendlesham and Sutton Hoo? People who buried their dead at Sutton Hoo would definitely have known about Rendlesham and almost certainly have stayed there at points in time. It's also very possible that some of the objects found at Sutton Hoo were made at Rendlesham because we do have evidence evidence of precious metalworking, gold objects with filigree and gold and garnet beads and we have all stages of the manufacture process represented so we have bits of scrap, we also have moulds and models for moulds to make the objects so I think some of the objects might well have been made there. So I've brought some pictures to show you because the actual objects have just gone and display at Ipswich Museum and this is a lovely image of the coinage that we have because obviously in Mound 1 you've got 37 coins and they're gold Merovingian tremises and we also have 25 of those from Rendlesham itself. The same coins, again, from modern-day France. So that's a very large amount. It's bigger than any other amount found in the rest of the country. So there are strong similarities between the finds from both sites. What's the image on the Merovingian coin? The image is a crowned bust of a ruler looking right, so it's him in side profile, like you find on Roman coins in the earlier period. We do know that this coin is from Dorstadt, mm. so it's obviously been imported from there. Now, at Sutton Hoo, the coins were found in the purse, so we think they were probably elite gift exchange, whereas at Rendlesham the coins are scattered over the 50 hectares, so we think it's more likely that actually there they were being used for high-level transactions, so people were actually trading and having a monetary economy at Rendlesham itself, which is quite interesting and does challenge some of the things people have previously thought 
about the use of this gold coinage in the Anglo-Saxon period. So what you're saying, it's not just kind of high status, almost like sort of specialist grave goods that were brought in in order to be buried with the king, that you've got a much more cosmopolitan economy going on. Yes, and we do know that there would have been a lot of people from Europe who would have come over to trade, because we have Byzantine vessel fragments like you have in Mound 1, for example, at Sutton Hoo. We also have Byzantine coinage. So the connection with the eastern Mediterranean does seem to be quite strong, both at Rendlesham and at Sutton Hoo. I mean, that's amazing to think, because at that time, Constantinople itself is very cosmopolitan. So you've got Persians and Arabs and Greeks and men and women from the Caucasus. So they're in Constantinople. The idea that some of them then come as traders here to East Anglia is really exciting. So if we're to imagine this king living at Rendlesham, what kinds of things was he doing? Do, Do we have any clues for that in the digs? Yes, we do, actually, because on one of the trenches that we opened, we found a midden, which is a very large rubbish dump, and within that there was an awful lot of animal bone. From the animal bone, we can tell that there's some very large, well-fed dogs and also hawking evidence. So we think that the king would have spent quite a lot of time hunting. And also the animal bone shows that they feasted and ate a lot of young sheep, cattle and pigs, which you have to be quite wealthy to do. So it does show a sort of opulent lifestyle, um, sort of a playboy king, I suppose I'm imagining, who would have moved from place to place, taken his followers with him, sort of drawn out the resources from the local area, and then when they'd had enough, he would have gone to the next place. He would have kept him in the manner to which he'd become accustomed. And what does all this tell you about the level of control that these kings enjoyed? I think it was a highly organised society. Although they had no actual towns as we think of them today, obviously they could control commerce and trade and they could control the revenue coming in and people would have had to pay tribute to the king. So I think it was very organised. Amazing. So, I mean, it really is going to rewrite what we think of the Anglo-Saxon world, this. Yes, it is, because I think previously we thought that the Anglo-Saxon sites in East Anglia were small and not so long-lasting, whereas Rendlesham is very rich, as we've seen by the finds, and very long-lasting from the 5th to the 8th century. It's very high status and very active. And this has more in common with sites perhaps in Sweden than it does with sites in England, so that's interesting. And the sites in Sweden are sort of estate centres and regional centres of kingship, so I think we could be seeing something similar in East Anglia. Together, Sutton Hoo and Rendlesham are shaping up to produce a brilliantly vivid mosaic of clues. Settlements of the living as well as of the dead, where in terms of culture and ideas and belief and sheer stuff, the king and his people were exposed to a variegated global world. These were high achievers who were the opposite of insular. Men and women who lived at a time when the seas and rivers weren't viewed as barriers, but as highways, and who clearly drew great pride and purpose and satisfaction from their ability to reach out beyond their immediate horizons and to revel in the influences and the treasures and the ideas that they found in other lands and other lives. For more information about Sutton Hoo, including opening times and dates, go to www.nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash Sutton Hoo. Thank you for listening. Don't forget this is part of a 10-part series and the other programmes can be found by searching for Bethany Hughes's 10 Places, Europe and Us on the National Trust website or subscribe through your favourite podcast app. 
I'm Bethany Hughes. This podcast was commissioned by Ivo Dorney and was produced by Melissa Fitzgerald. It was a Blakeway production for the National Trust. Autumn in the garden, whether it's raking, harvesting, planting or planning next year's big show or the winter's big task, there's always lots to do. It never really stops. Which is why the National Trust has created a brand new podcast all about our gardens, hosted by me, Alan Power, head gardener at Stourhead in Wiltshire. I really can't wait to walk you around some of the country's most stunning gardens, sharing their stories, secrets and talking to the amazing people who help to look after these beautiful places and changing landscapes. If you subscribe... We'll even give you a few extra programmes throughout the month too. So find us now by searching for the National Trust Gardens podcast. And in the meantime, if you're at Stourhead or any other National Trust garden, say hello as you wander our estates.